Well, good morning. That's fun. Let's do that again. Good morning. Hey, all right. Well, hey, listen, uh, this is a fun time of year, right? School's coming to a close, and high school athletes across the state of Texas are receiving a letter jacket. A letter jacket, if you remember back in high school, I mean, man, that was like the crown jewel, wasn't it? I mean, you worked hard to receive your letter jacket. And it really is a special thing. It, it honors hard work and discipline and commitment and competition. And when you're in high school, when you receive that letter jacket, you wear it with pride. There's a great sense of accomplishment. But here's the crazy thing about the letter jacket. The moment you graduate from high school, it's no longer cool to wear your letter jacket, right? I mean, none of us want to gather with our friends who talk about how cool they were at high school, right? I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, hey, listen, at some point, these, um, these, these achievements you're striving for in high school, they'll no longer be cool. Nobody's going to care about the letter jacket. My words simply to them are, don't peak at high school, right? And so letter jackets are really neat, but could you imagine if today I wore my letter jacket? I mean, what if I came up here and I was like, hey guys, woo, you see this? See that patch right there? Back in 90, woo <laughs> We were really good. Like you would look at me like something was really wrong, you know, or uh, high school seniors, Try showing up next year as a freshman in college with your letter jacket on. That's just not the cool thing to do. But here's what I want to share with you. There's going to come a point in our lives when we are going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account for how we lived our lives. And here's what I think is tragic is that we're gonna stand before the Lord, many of us, and it's gonna be like we put on a letter jacket. The things that we're pursuing today, we're gonna look back on and we're gonna go, man, like, why did I invest so much time and energy in pursuing letter jackets? Why did I forsake what was truly important and what I professed to believe on Sunday? Why did, I, why did I spend so much energy in seeking good things, but not ultimate things? Good things, but not eternal things. See, I believe every one of us, we want to finish well. We, we don't want to just finish high school well. We want to finish life well. We want to arrive at the point when we stand before our maker and we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? I mean, that's what we all want to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. But how do we do this? I mean, how do we live in such a way that when we come to the end of our lives, we found that we live for the ultimate things, the eternal things, the thing that God valued, and we will be able to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Today, we're going to see that finishing well starts by living faithfully today. Finishing well starts by living faithfully today. And we're going to conclude our look at the book of 2 Timothy. Specifically, we're going to look at chapter 4, the whole thing. And we're going to see that, um, that in order to finish well, we must first, we've got to hold to sound doctrine, verses 1 through 5. Hold to sound doctrine. Verses 6 through 8, we're going to see that we, we have to live for the eternal reward. Live for what's eternal, not what's temporary. And then finally, he's going to close and he's going to show us that we've got to invest in the lives of people. So how do we live well such that we'll hear those words that we all want to hear? Well done, my good and faithful servant. This is Paul's last word to Timothy. He's writing to his protege from a Roman prison. He knows he's about to die. These are his final words. In chapter one, he told him to guard the deposit of faith. In chapter two, he told him to be strong in the faith. Chapter three, to persevere in the faith. And then finally in four, finish well, Timothy. Finish well. So let's jump into verses one through five. In uh, these uh, five short verses, we're going to see there's nine imperatives that Paul gives. Let's read this together. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready. Be ready in season. Be ready out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. How you finish well, Timothy? Hold the sound doctrine. Hold the sound doctrine. Notice verse one, one more time. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Right? This charge that I'm giving you, Timothy, couldn't be more important. I love the way the message says this. I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder is the paraphrase of verse one. Paul's charge was made in light, in light of Christ's presence, in light of Christ's judgment, in light of Christ's return. Timothy, what I'm about to share with you is of utmost importance. Get this right. And then he tells them to preach the word, which he, he described as the inspired word of God a chapter before. It's not just any ordinary book. It's the inspired word of God, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Take this word and preach it in season and out of season. At all times, he was to be ready, literally to be on duty. He was to reprove those who were not correct in their thinking around God's word. He was to rebuke those who lived contrary to the will of God. He was to exhort those who were 
living faithfully and continue to encourage them and applaud them and tell them to, to keep going. And he was to do so with complete patience and instruction. I love that. Right? When, like, hey, Timothy, when you're teaching, do it patiently. Do it in a way where you inform your followers. Don't do it out of angry, out of an angry spirit and spite or impatiently. No, no one wants to be instructed from a teacher who is impatient or doesn't clearly inform them on, hey, what's expected of me? But you do it with patience and clear guidance. And the reason why this was so important is because he warns them. He says, hey, verse three, for the time's coming, Timothy. Hey, the time's coming when people, those who are listening to you, they will not endure sound teaching. In other words, they are going to reject the teaching of God's word. Why? Because they want to have their ears tickled. In other words, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers who are going to tell them what they want to hear. Like, hey, this is what the Bible may say, but that feels pretty inconvenient, or I don't like that, or that feels judgmental, or it doesn't seem right to me. So what I'll do is I'll just go over and I'll listen to those who will tell me what I want to hear. It's coming. They'll turn away from listening to the truth, he says, and they will wander off into myths. But Timothy, you do this. As for you, verse 5, you be sober-minded, clear thinking. Endure suffering, endure hardship is what he said earlier as a good soldier in Jesus Christ. Do the work of an evangelist. Make sure people understand the clarity of the gospel. Fulfill your ministry. If you want to finish well, Timothy, if you want to finish well, Watermark, you've got to hold to sound doctrine. Now, when I, when I think about doctrine, if you're like me, I, I, I hear that term and I go, you know, we don't use that term very often, do we? Doctrine. When I think doctrine, I think old. I think dusty. I think out of touch. I think um, kind of like cold or distant principles. But doctrine's a word we should, we should claim back because Bible doctrine is essential. Let me tell you what doctrine is. Doctrine is just simply what the church believes, what the church teaches, and confess, confesses on the basis of God's word. That's what doctrine is. It's not stale or old. Bible doctrine is what the church believes, teaches, and confesses based on the truth of God's word. We need Bible doctrine. It's essential to the Christian faith. It instructs us. It guides us. It protects us. And it unites us. Clear teaching, clear Bible doctrine it instructs us, guides us, protects us, and unites us. Several years ago, um, we were able to, to rescue a, a, a young dog, right? A, a black lab, a puppy. 
And uh, I love dogs. I love dogs. And, um, and this dog and I quickly, we, we bonded. And my wife had one rule for when we get a dog. She said, hey, listen, like I've got four kids at home. And so when I open up the door, I don't want to have to then chase the dog down the street. Right? So can we train the dog to where when you open up the door, you know, she's not just darting down the street. And, uh, and so I have a friend who actually is a member here at Watermark who trains dogs. And he's like, that's one of the easiest things I could ever teach. I'm like, really? He goes, oh, yeah. And so I was like, so how, how do you have a dog to where you walk the dog? You don't even have to have a leash. And it just, she'll stay right beside you. And he goes, I got it. So he comes over and uh, pulls out of his bag of tricks, right? Just this long 12 foot, what he called, it was a black, what he called the check cord with just a little clip on it. And you put that check cord on the dog's collar like that. And then when you open up the door, you just stand on the check cord. You never touch the dog. You just stand on the check cord. You open up the, the door. And of course, the first time, you know what the dog wants to do? Bolt out of the house. But where, how far does that dog get to go? As far as that check cord, about 12 feet. Now, the first time he does it, or she does it, she darts out and at about 12 feet, woo, falls back. Second time, tries it. Third time, not going anywhere. Walk outside. Walked her all over the neighborhood. And when she got a little too far, I'd just step on it, right? And then she'd feel that tug and then she'd come right back to me. I haven't put a leash on my dog in years, in years. That check cord taught her to stay close to the one who loves her, who has her best interests in mind. I'm not trying to keep her away from having fun. I'm trying to keep her close to me because I don't want her to run out in the street. I don't want to lose her. I love that dog. And the check cord has kept her close to me, the one who has her best interests in mind. And that's what Bible doctrine does. Clear biblical teaching, it instructs us, it guides us, it protects us, it unites us. It keeps us close to the God who loves us, our master. I want you to think for a second of just how Bible doctrine, the practical implications here. Consider the difference between the college, the incoming freshman who believes that God's word is authoritative and true and that truth is absolute versus the incoming freshman who believes that truth is relative. Believes that truth is found from within and whatever feels good, do it. Now think for a second, if that's what you believe about truth, either it's absolute or it's relative, do you think their experience at the end of those four years will be different? Bible doctrine matters. Or think about the single adult the single adult who believes that life is found in loving God and serving others versus the single adult who believes, no, life is found in my career, in my accomplishments, in my wealth. Theology matters, friends. Or the married couple that views their marriage, right, as a covenant before God to reflect the Godhood the Trinity. 
And that marriage is not just for their happiness, but it's to reflect the holiness of God versus the couple who gets married sees marriage as just a contract and you stay in for as long as you're happy. You think theology matters? Absolutely. In every area of our lives, theology informs what we think and how we live. The cancer patient who believes that everything that happens in this life happens according to a God who's providentially at work who's sovereign over every aspect of our lives. The cancer patient who believes in hope of a resurrection and life eternal versus the cancer patient who just believes we're here because of time plus chance plus matter and then after you die, there's nothing. How do they respond to that kind of diagnosis? Theology informs everything, friends. As one person has rightly said, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And it's for this reason that Paul says in Ephesians 4, he calls us, he says, hey, no longer be children. Don't be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Don't be tossed here and there by all the ideas that flood you day in and day out, contrary to clear Bible teaching. Know God's word, hold fast to Bible doctrine if you wanna finish well. Paul's charge, it really, it serves as a helpful litmus test for the church today. At Watermark, we, we hold to what we refer to as seven essentials. There's seven essentials that corporately we hold to that every member says, hey, listen, I believe that. I wanna be held accountable to that. I wanna be instructed in that. I wanna be encouraged to that. I wanna be informed because I believe those seven essentials to be true. And it's around the doctrines of the Bible, the Trinity, who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit, the nature of man, salvation, and the second coming. We are unashamed, unequivocal, immovable, fully convicted that these seven truths are of God and are best for us and should inform everything we do. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and is our final authority in doctrine and practice. We're unapologetic. We believe in the Trinity We believe there is one God, that Father, Son, and the Spirit are each God, and the Father, Son, and Spirit are each a distinct person. We believe with all of our hearts. We believe in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man without ceasing to be God. And he accomplished our redemption through his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, his burial, and his bodily resurrection. That's what every member at Watermark says, hey, I believe. If you go to our website, you'll see what we believe on the Holy Spirit. We believe God the Spirit restrains evil in the world, convicts mankind of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and dwells within the heart of all believers. Do you believe that? Like, do you really believe that? That you're a temple of God. And that God's Spirit lives in you. The nature of man, we believe man was created innocent in the image of enlightenment of God, but that man sinned, bringing both physical and spiritual death to himself and his posterity. That the ultimate problem we all face is not a lack of education, 
Not a lot of lack of finances. We don't have marital problems, conflict with coworkers. Ultimately, our greatest problem is the problem of sin. That we've rebelled against a perfect, righteous, and holy God. That's what we believe. And it manifests itself in thousands of ways. But the good news is, is we believe in the doctrine of salvation. We believe salvation is a gift of God and is received by man through personal faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sin. We, for sin. we believe that God loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you've done it, you are not made right with God because you have a letter jacket. Because of all, the good outweighs the bad. Or you come to church. That's not what makes one right with God. What makes one right with God is someone who recognizes that ultimately they are a sinner. That we've lived in such a way that's contrary to the will of God, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so salvation is a gift to be received, not because of something we've done, but because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's where we find life. It's the hope of the gospel. And it defines everything we do. And we believe in the second coming. We believe in the future visible and bodily return of Jesus Christ to earth. We believe that God is providentially at work. History is not just a random occurrence of events, but God is so orchestrating the events that occur in this world to culminate in the return of the Son. Do you believe these things? Do you believe them? Corporally, that's what we hold to at the very least. You have to say and have to believe in order to be a part of this particular church. And those truths will never change. We're unapologetic. And we ask our members every year to reaffirm these seven essentials and what we call the 4 before. It's just a chance for us as the family at this local community of faith to go, hey, count me in. I believe those things to be true. I want to remain a part of this family of believers. The goal, friends, is not just to check a box, like intellectually, pass a, a quiz. The, the, the goal is to reaffirm what we believe to be true and our common commitment to one another. You cannot love God if you do not know him. Bible doctrine helps us to know his character. And you cannot know him apart from understanding right doctrine. When I was in um, college, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Europe for several weeks. And I found myself over a couple of days, my friends, we had all split up and uh, we were studying over there and I found myself for a couple of days in Paris, France, which sounds great, but I was all alone. I don't know if you've ever been in a foreign country where you didn't speak the language, but man, you talk about feeling isolated. And here I am sitting here in Paris and I'm thinking, you know, this is the city of lights. It's a beautiful place. It's where everybody wants to come. And yet I can't make my way around anywhere. 
Because everybody speaks French and I speak English. I couldn't read anything. It was hard to get directions, hard to order food. Some people were willing to help, but man, it felt isolating. And one night while I was out, I happened to run into a friend of mine from college who I wasn't really particularly close with back home. But when we saw one another, I mean, I wanted to give that guy a hug and hold on tight because immediately, I mean, we looked at each other and we spent the next few days in Paris together and we made memories and had a ball. Why? Why was it so great to see him? Because we spoke a common language. We had a shared worldview. And Christian, let me tell you something. The Bible describes you as an alien and stranger in this world. That this world should feel unfamiliar to you. That the things you value, if you hold the sound doctrine, should make you stand out. But when you come across somebody else who holds that same language, speaks your language, holds the same worldview, has the same values you have, man, you want to embrace them. If if you want to finish well, hold the sound doctrine. Here's two helpful things you can do in your community group. I would encourage you, go to the website and look at, look at the seven essentials. Review them with your group or sign up for our Understanding the Essentials of Christianity, our online course you can take by yourself or with your community group. Second thing you gotta do is you gotta live for the eternal reward. Live for the eternal reward. Knowing his death was imminent, Paul focused on the eternal reward. Look at verses six through eight. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knew his death was imminent. He knew his death was imminent. He uses images like military images, athletic images, stewardship images, saying, hey, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've come to the end, but I've remained faithful. I've lived for what was eternal. And I know that in verse eight, I know there's going to be an eternal reward for me, the crown of righteousness. But notice, notice the promise he makes in verse eight. He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but what? But also to all who have loved his appearing. That includes you and me. That when we live faithfully, when, to finish well, we live for the eternal reward. We recognize that there's more to this life than what's just simply temporary. That we're all gonna stand before God one day. We'll all give an account for how we lived our lives. I said that doctrine's not popular to talk about anymore. Well, neither is the judgment of God. That's just not something that we talk about in churches as much as we should, and yet it is as clear in scripture as any other doctrine. That God's judgment is certain. That God's judgment is, is personal and it is final. We must understand this. I, I love the game of chess. I don't know how many people play chess out there. 
But um, I love the game of chess. And when I was trying to teach my kids growing up how to play chess, I, I tried to instill within them, hey, the object of the game is to capture your opponent's king. That is the object of the game. And yet sometimes, strategically, you'll sacrifice pieces in order to accomplish the main objective, to capture the king. But my kids are young, and so oftentimes, here I am, and I'd sacrifice pieces, and they would feel great because they're taking a pawn or they're taking a knight of mine. And yet, all along, I'm just strengthening my position because ultimately, I want to capture the king. And here they are collecting pieces, losing sight of what the objective of the game is, capturing my king. Gang, we will all stand before the Lord and give an account for how we lived our lives. Mark my words. And some of us are collecting pieces that we're gonna look back on and we're gonna go, hey, yeah, I accomplished this in my career, which was great, but it was temporal. I had a great vacation, I had a great experience. I, 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 I made this much of money or I, I earned this degree. All good things in and of themselves, but not ultimate things, not eternal things. If you want to finish well, you've got to recognize the objective. To glorify God, to live for what is eternal, to seek the eternal reward, the crown of righteousness, not just collecting pieces, the things of this world. If, if you want to know what you're living for, Jesus gives us, he gives us a really clear test. Hey, what do I ultimately value? Jesus tells us. He tells us in Matthew 6, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You wanna know what you ultimately value? Look at how you spend your money. Look at how you spend your time. That, that'll be a clear indicator of what you value. If you wanna finish well, friends, you've gotta hold the sound doctrine, you've gotta live for the eternal reward, and you've gotta invest in the lives of people. Paul closes in verses nine through 22. It's so clear he prioritized relationships. Paul prioritized relationships. He lists in these final verses the names of 17 people. At the end of Romans, he lists over 40 names at a church he had never even visited. But he was specific, name by name by name by name. Notice what he says. He says, um, he talks about Demas. Demas deserted him, verse 10, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. He says in verse 11 that, that Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful to me in ministry. Alexander the coppersmith, verse 14, did me great harm and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. Paul invested in people. Some deserted him, some stuck with him, some were useful to him, some harmed him, but he invested in the lives of people. I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, so being, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also 
ourselves, our very own lives. Why? Because you'd become dear to us. You see, Paul didn't just teach to inform the mind. He invested in the lives of people. He loved people. And that's ultimately what ministry, life, is all about. The people we loved. The lives we invested in. Those we encouraged along the way. Friends, who are you investing in today? Like, who are you seeking out, loving, praying for, intentionally serving? Who's on your list as you close your letter? The people you want to encourage, the people you want to help, the people you want to support, the people in your office, the people in your school, the people in your neighborhood, who do you see? Like, who do you see? There was um, two coffee shops in my neighborhood, and this is really interesting to me. Um, one on Hillcrest and one on Preston, and they opened up at about the same time. The coffee shop on Hillcrest Road, which was closer to my house, was um, a more uh, name brand, one that most people recognize as local co- coffee shop. And, and I went in there one day with my wife, and, and, uh, and when I went in, the, the girl behind the counter seemed pretty miffed that I was even there. She was on her phone, clearly she was on social media, you know, or playing a game or, you know, collecting whatever, coins. And she was playing, and when I asked, it sounded like I had inconvenienced her for my cup of coffee. Now, it had tables and chairs and Wi-Fi and all those things. And she hands me the cup of coffee and, you know, hey, say thanks. And I tried to be kind or whatever. And I don't know if she really said much to me at all. And so I took my coffee and I was like, eh, I don't think I ever want to go back there. Right, And then there's another coffee shop a little bit further from my house that opened up on Preston Road. And I go in there and it's half the size. There are no tables. It feels like a long hallway, it's just a nook. And I walk in with my wife, another coffee shop, I walk in with my wife and the owner's standing in front of the counter. And when he walks, when I walk in, he sees me, his eyes connect with me and he goes, hey, how are you? Is this your first time in? Well, as a matter of fact, it is. Oh, well, great. Well, tell me about the kind of coffee you like. And I'm like, tell me the kind of coffee I like. Okay, well, and I describe the coffee drink and he listens to me and he goes, I think I know what you want. So he goes behind the counter. I don't even make an order. He goes behind the counter, he comes, he hands me the coffee and he goes, there you go. I take a sip and I go, that's excellent. That's excellent. And he goes, great. I'm glad you like it. I go, so if I come back, what do I call this? He goes, oh, you just, when you come in, just tell them you want cowboy juice. I was like, great, cowboy juice. (laughs) So I go back in looking for my cowboy juice. I walk in, the first thing happens when I walk in, he goes, hey, Blake, are you back for cowboy juice? Truly. And I'm like, hey, this is a pretty good store. There is no Wi-Fi, there are no tables. And this guy seems to like me. (laughs) And he remembered my name. And so I think, well, you know, maybe it's because I'm a nice guy. So then I go on Saturday morning and I recognize, oh, now I'm in line. And there's several people. But here what was was crazy is it went, oh, hey, Mark. Hey, Sally. Hi, Rob. Hi, Michael. Hi, Blake. They knew people's names. Every individual mattered 
And I said to him, I go, hey man, you not only have great coffee, but it's, like I've come in on Saturdays, this isn't just like a sideshow, like you know people's names. And he said to me, yeah, Blake, I'm, I mean, let me be candid with you. I'm not in the coffee business. I'm in the people business. And I thought, whew, how right that is. We're in the people business. Paul prioritized relationships. And I just want to say to two groups of people today, some of you are visiting. Some of you are online. Some of you, this is your first time at Watermark. Some of you have been here a thousand times and we still don't know who you are. Some of you have walked in today and you're going, wow, there's hundreds of people here. I'll never get plugged in. Can I just say to you, we would love to know your name. We we want to know you. And every week we tell you, right, it's it's not just a, you know, a hollow invitation. We say, hey, take this Watermark News, fill it out. Let us know your name. And someone on our staff will follow up with you this week. We call you, hey, become a member. Get into a community group. Find a place to serve. And when you do that, a really big place begins to feel really small. Because let's face it, you can look around and you can go, hey, this is really big. No one's ever going to know me. But you know what? If you're in a room of 100, the same thing could be true. 50, the same thing could be true. 10, the same thing could be true. Or sitting at a table for four, the same thing could be true if you never let somebody get to know you. And we wanna get to know you. And we wanna encourage you and pray for you and help you. And for those of you who are members of Watermark, who are faithfully serving, you're you're a student leader for years investing in people. You're a Bible study leader. You're a mentor in South Dallas. You're leading a community group. But the thousands of ways in which you're serving, can I just thank you for investing in people? Because what makes this family special is, is, is not whatever happens up here on a Sunday, but it's individual members who recognize, hey, you know what? Life's about loving God and loving people. And that's how I'm gonna finish well. I want to introduce to you two couples. And each couple is an example to me. And what I thought about, hey, who are the friends in my life who hold the sound doctrine, who live for the eternal reward, invest in the lives of people? I thought about these two couples. Let's watch this video together. We are uh, Jim and Judy Wimberly. I'm Neil Curran. And I'm Jody Curran. I just... Recently uh, celebrated my 80th birthday. Uh, I became a believer in 1970, so I've been learning to lean on Jesus for over 50 years. Well, when it comes to sound doctrine, I think of things that I learned early in my faith. The great commandment is to love God with your whole heart and soul and mind and to love others as yourself. And then I learned the Great Commission, which is to make disciples. So that's what my life ought to be about. Well, holding to sound doctrine is important because it is the only truth in the universe that we or anyone can rely on. We are just in a stream of various ideas and thoughts that culture is pushing on us. And so 
holding on to sound doctrine is, is having a steadfast place to where you can be sure of what you're choosing each day when you choose sound doctrine, that it's what God would want you to do. At this time in his life, uh, Paul was looking forward to eternity. And uh, actually in uh, verse eight, uh, he said that there is a prize that awaits everyone that is looking forward to his appearing. That prize is the crown of righteousness. And uh, Judy and I also are looking forward to eternity and we're looking forward to uh, his appearing. And my dad was just the greatest guy. And whenever I did anything that was a little out of the ordinary that he approved, I'd get a big smile. And I go through life thinking, even when people reject what I'm saying about Jesus or um, don't agree with me, I, I just think to myself, well, Jesus is smiling. One of the things that uh, we have done is that we have prayed that uh, God would allow us to uh, show and share the love of Christ with uh, people that, that he brings around us. And we want to be faithful and available to do that with our words and with our ways. And we, like Paul, have had some disappointments, but God has never abandoned us. The fact that Paul was seeing his life poured out, and of course it's 77 and 80, I have no fear of death, and I recognize that we're all dying. Sooner or later, we're all dying. And so what do you want to invest in? What do you want to give your life to? I think to uh, live our lives in accordance with God's Word and uh, just uh, uh, telling others about the good news that He has allowed us to find is what he is calling us to do as followers of Christ. You want to finish well, then you need to keep growing. And the way to keep growing is to study the Word and interact with other people and help them grow and understand. I think that's the key, is continually being involved in the Word and studying it and learning and serving others.